Amen. Friends, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And at this time, I invite all the kids out this side door with Miss Joy for Jumpstart. You guys will be right back in time for communion. If you're just joining us, we're going through a series right now called Whole. We're going through uh, each book in the Old Testament one week at a time, and we are into the last book of the Torah, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. As Doug already mentioned, this is called the Shema, uh, which is based on just the first word in Hebrew. Uh, they would have said, it would have sounded like Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. That's how, if you want to know what it sounded like, that's what it would have sounded like. Uh, but this is Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read verses uh, 4 through 9. So with that in mind, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask now in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that you would empower us, each one of us in this room, to know your love and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, this is the greatest commandment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why do we study history? Why do we study, is anyone here really into history? Is there a history buff in the room? Why do we study history? You know, anybody know why we study history? Well, um, I have a couple of ideas, but I I don't want to just, you know, say what I think. I'm going to give you a couple of ideas sort of based on, um, you know, maybe what other, some other famous people have said about this. Let's see how well you can maybe fill out some of these quotes, okay? So why, why do we study history? Well, uh, anybody know how you finish this, this phrase? Uh, this comes from William Shakespeare. What's past is, anybody know? It's from The Tempest. What's past is prologue. What does Shakespeare mean? Well, what has passed is really just setting us up. It's the prologue to the story in front of us, right? What our past is tells us what? Where we are headed. What's past is prologue. All right, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one from sort of my neck of the woods. Uh, This is from William Faulkner, uh, the great uh, one-time Ole Miss quarterback and, you know, winner of the Nobel Prize. Uh, In Requiem for a Nun, Faulkner wrote these famous words, the past is never dead. It's not even, anybody know the end of this quote? The past is never dead. It's not even past. You know, what's Faulkner's point? Well, our past as much as we may forget about it, it, actually has a huge impact on our lives, right? That's the whole point. Our past isn't even dead. It's not even past, right? It's the thing that's impacting us today, and it determines something about our future, right? All right, um, I'll give you another one. This is George uh, Santayana. He was a professor and philosopher. Maybe you know this one. Those who do not learn history are what? Doomed to tell their mother-in-laws you were right. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what it? No, that's not his quote. That's my quote. Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it, right? So why do we study history? Oh, so boring. 
Oh, so boring, right? That's what many of us think. Why do we study history? Well, what I would suggest to you is that we look back so that we can look forward. We look back because looking back actually tells us the trajectory of our lives. We look back, we look back at the past because it's not even past. What's past is prologue. And if we don't learn from the past, we're doomed to repeat it, right? We look back to look forward, all right? That's my big idea this morning. And really, that's what I'm trying to do uh, in this whole series as we're going through, you know, one book in the Old Testament per week is because really what we're doing is we're looking back at the story of God. And we're even looking back further than many of us often go. We're looking back beyond the New Testament into the Old Testament. And we're trying to see what's past is actually prologue. (laughs) What God has done in the Old Testament is actually setting the stage for what you and I are experiencing even now. And it sets our lives on a trajectory. Right? Uh, we've suggested to you uh, over the last several weeks you know, that the story of God's steadfast love begins at creation. Right? Uh, the next chapter in that story is our created beautiful world falls into sin. But God doesn't choose to leave us in chapter 2. He moves us into chapter 3, which is his plan of redemption. And now, as he has begun that plan of redemption... What's in the past is what's guiding us to look forward to chapter 4 when he restores all things, right? What's past is prologue, right? And so really that's what we're doing in this series, right? We're looking back. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because if you look down with me at Deuteronomy, you know, to, to, to summarize the book of Deuteronomy in one sermon is really intimidating because actually there are three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. That's really what Deuteronomy is, is Moses' recorded three sermons and then his death at the end. Really, so what Deuteronomy is doing, if you're looking at your Bible, you know, in your lap, is really, this is the last book of the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Bible. Torah means instruction or law, right? And what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy is he's actually looking back and he is telling them what their past is, not because he wants them to live in the past, but so that they would learn from it so they could have a hope and a future, Right, So to understand the book of Deuteronomy, as you read it, you'll realize, if you're following along with this series, very rarely does Moses provide new information. He's pretty much summarizing what has already happened in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Right, He's already just sort of summarizing the first four books. And what Moses is doing is he's looking back so that when he's dead, the people can have a hope in the future. Right? He looks back to look forward. And Deuteronomy is incredibly important. Uh, It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Uh, This is a book that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself comes back to all of the time. They're constantly looking to the book of Deuteronomy. They're constantly looking back to look forward. Uh, Think about it this way. Uh, You know, when Jesus is in in the wilderness, in the wilderness. Interesting that Jesus goes in the wilderness, isn't it? It's almost like he's doing what Israel never could. Jesus goes to the wilderness, and he's tempted, but he endures the wilderness. He succeeds where his people fail in the wilderness, right? But Satan comes, and he tempts Jesus three times, right? You can read about this in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And, you know, what does, the, what does Satan tempt him to do? Do you remember this story? You know, uh, Jesus isn't eating or drinking for 40 days, and Satan comes up to Jesus and says what? Turn these rocks into what? Bread. And how does Jesus respond? Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. In fact, 
each of the three times that Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds by simply quoting the book of Deuteronomy. You know, it's amazing to me that, um, you know, it's like when I, when I, I think I've shared this with you before, but I hope you don't think less of me, but I hope you see it as kind of me being a little honest. But like when I stub my toe, like the words of hell come out. I like all kind of awful words come out of my heart when I stub my toe or someone cuts me off. You know, when I'm physically hurt, bad things come out of me because my heart is, is wicked, right? Um, maybe you're the same way. Uh, but isn't it amazing that when Jesus is tempted for 40 days, what comes out of him is Deuteronomy? <laughs> when he's got nothing left, he really does believe man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, even when Jesus is on the cross, what comes out of him? Curses? Psalms. <laughs> Psalms. Jesus looked back to the word of God so that he could look forward that he could live in his life today. He didn't live in the past. He saw the past as a guide for the future. And of course, I mean, Deuteronomy keeps showing up all over the New Testament. Uh, you know, that the guy who wants to know what he has to do to have eternal life, and you know, then Jesus gives him the story of the Good Samaritan. And actually, the guy comes up to Jesus in Luke 10. He says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And what does Jesus answer? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, right? But it's interesting that Jesus sees our passage as the core commandment. This is the core idea of what it means to know God. Because to know God is to love God and to be loved by him. This is it. <laughs> if you get this passage, you'll get everything about Deuteronomy. And what Jesus would say is you'll get everything there is about knowing and serving the true God. Right? He says all the law and the prophets hang on this commandment and the commandment to love your neighbor. It's like your life is a painting and the two nails that are holding it up together <laughs> is the command to love God and to love others. Right? So it's worth our time. Right? So let's, with all that to say, um, I'm going to try to give you sort of four things. Uh, I'm going to give you an outline. I don't really like outlines, but some people are really into outlines. But I'm going to give you sort of four things that are going to guide what I want us to see. And that's simply hearing, knowing, loving, doing. Right? So if you're taking notes, you could generally follow those, and I may or may not follow that. Hearing, knowing, loving, doing. Right? So let's look with me uh, at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look with me right there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Here, this is Moses talking to the people, right? Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So right off the bat, what I want us to see is that word hear right there. So my first point that I want you to see is this idea of hearing, hearing, okay? So the Hebrew word there is shema. And this is, as Doug was saying, it's a very famous passage. It means the word hear in Hebrew is shema. It's a command, shema, hear. And uh, this is, uh, you know, Jewish people pray this in, uh, every, every morning and night, right? For thousands of years, this is the thing that they've prayed every day uh, to book in their day, right? This is a huge passage. And this is, remember, this is Jesus' go-to verse for the most important commandment. But right there, look with me at the word here, right? And if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that word here. Because here doesn't just mean to like listen audibly, right? It's auditorially. It's not just hearing it, right? Um, hearing in Scripture implies more than just simply hearing, right? Uh, it means hearing 
and obeying, right? I mean, isn't this like, I mean, just think about the way you raise kids or you talk to your spouse or, you know, you're talking to a coworker. It's like, I know that you are hearing the words coming out of my mouth, but are you hearing me, right? Uh, so what we tell our kids is we always say, hear and obey, hear and obey, right? Because the and obey is really important, right? Because it's not just about hearing, there's this idea that I need to hear and it needs to actually do something different in my life. It does you no good. It does you no good to just listen to a sermon if you are not going to apply it to your life. It does you no good to listen to the commands of Jesus if you don't put them into practice. Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus says, there will be many people who say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And what will Jesus say? At the end of the day, he'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I did not know you. Hearing always, whether you're in the New Testament or you are in the Old Testament, and whether you are alive today or you were alive thousands of years ago, we all know the difference between hearing and hearing and obeying. Right? The Lord wants us to hear and obey. Right? It's not just about it coming in through our ears. It's about it changing us from the inside out. This is why Jesus is constantly quoting the book of Isaiah. He who has ears to hear. He who has eyes to see. Right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what does Jesus mean when he says, him who have ears to hear, let him hear? When he says hear, what does he mean? Hear and what? And obey. Hear and obey. And he who has eyes to see, let him see. And what he sees should change the trajectory of their lives, right? So uh, when you hear a sermon or you hear, you know, you read God's word, is it actually making an impact on your life? You know, uh, or is it like, uh, you know, you're, it's like you're looking in the mirror and then you never fix your hair. You know, that's how Paul kind of compares it. Uh, you know, the proverb says it's like if we look into God's word but has no impact on us, what good is it doing? Now, if anything, uh, you know, what I think the New Testament would suggest is it's actually heaping judgment on you because now you know what you should be doing and now you're knowingly not doing it. See, but the beautiful thing is, um, the hope there is that if you know God and you love him, you will hear and obey. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings to mind the words that the Lord has given you. He convicts you of sin. That's the power of the Spirit. You and God's Spirit are like this now. You are a temple of the Holy Ghost. There is no altar left for you to make a sacrifice. Your life is the sacrifice, right? You and God are now like this when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. So when God calls you to hear, if there's any inkling in you right now, if you're thinking, hmm, I want to be the kind of person that hears and obeys. Uh, friends, you have to start seeing that as proof that the Holy Spirit is in you because you didn't come up with that. That's the Spirit at work within you. And I would plead with you to lean into that. Widen your ears. Listen more to the Spirit. Want to be the kind of person that hears and obeys. Because if you read Deuteronomy, do the people hear and obey? I mean, you know, goodness gracious, when we read the Old Testament, it's like, 
do these people even have brains? What is going on? They're seeing a a pillar of fire. And then they're still going to worship false gods. How can they be so dense? But friends, um, Jesus came to the same problem in the New Testament. Even when he did miracles, people still rejected him. Jesus even says, even if a man comes back from the dead, they still won't believe. And you know why? It's because you and I don't come to faith because it makes sense. Yes, we use our reason. Yes, we use our minds. But you come to faith because you and I were once dead in our sins. And by the Spirit, you've come to life. There's now breath in your lungs. I mean, think about Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus called him by name from the tomb. That's the image of what it means to become a believer. You are dead in your sins. And now because of the great love with which he loved us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Are you hearing and do you want to obey? Do you hear? Do you want to obey? All right, so that's verse 4. So what are we supposed to hear? Well, notice where Moses goes. He says right there in verse 4, he says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, a lot of people may think that that sounds really redundant. You know, like if you're reading the Bible, sometimes you read the word, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We we sometimes just like trip over that idea of the Lord. Look right there in verse 4. Sometimes uh, we will say the word the Lord, but um, what you have to know is you look really carefully, and I think it's on the screen right here. Great. Well, if you look at the word the What letter is capitalized in the word the right there? It's a T, right? Okay, now look at the next word, L-O-R-D. Which letters are capitalized? All of them are capitalized. Is that grammatically wrong? It's that way in your Bible. If you look down right there, it should say the Lord, and it's all in caps. The Lord our God. Isn't that redundant? God our God. God our God. Lord our Lord. Is that what it's saying? Well, when you get the word Lord in the Old Testament... What you have to know, and excuse me if you already know this, the word Lord right there is our way of addressing the divine name of God. His name was ineffable in the old days, which means they would not have said it because it was too holy. You know, the third commandment is don't take the Lord's name in vain. So what's the best way to not take his name in vain? Don't ever say it. Don't say it. Didn't break the commandment, right? Makes a lot of sense. But this is where you get that idea of Yahweh. That was the divine name. And you will sometimes say something close to Yahweh when you say the words hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise Yah. Praise Yah. I'm not going to say his full name because I don't want to take it in vain. But hallelujah means praise. In Hebrew, halal is praise. Praise Yahweh is what we're saying. But the way you avoid saying or taking his name in vain is you wouldn't say the name, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the Hebrew name Yeshua means Yahweh saves, but you don't say Yahweh Shua. You say Yah-Shua because you don't want to take the name in vain. So how do we know when the Bible is saying the actual personal name of God, Yahweh, and not just the title God? Well, when you look at the word Lord right there, all in caps, that's when the Bible is saying Yahweh. But you shouldn't say it very often because it's a holy name. And the Jews would have never said that. They would have said, Yah, 
Or they would have preferred to say the name master, which in their language would have been Adonai. So right there, what that means is we have to understand that Yahweh, the Lord, is our God. And what I mean by that, I'm getting at the point number two in my outline, is not only do we need to hear and obey, we need to know who our God is. Our God is not just a generic spiritual entity. He's not just, you know, vaguely the light in the darkness. He is a specific God. And there is nobody like him. There are no other gods like him. He is one. You see that? The Lord our God, the Lord is what? He's one. And what that word one means is it means both that there's nobody like him, but it also means that he is one entity. He is God, and there's nobody else like him. And we don't serve a God who's just sort of like the nebulous idea of good ideas. We serve a God who is singular, who is unique, who has certain things that he loves and certain things that he hates. The things that our God loves are a beautiful creation. He loves justice. He loves mercy. He loves steadfast love. The things that our God can't stand are things like sin and abuse, murder. You can read the Ten Commandments, and you can pretty much learn about the character of our God. And if that's not clear enough as to who God is, um, know that God loves you so much that he actually sent his son into this world to give you an incredibly clear idea of what our God is like. And it is like Jesus. That's who our God is. If you want to know what God's like, study the life and the teachings of Jesus. He is God in human form. He is Emmanuel, God among us. Uh, you know, um, the, old, the old pastor saying is, you know, people often want a, uh, an airtight argument for God, right? People just want this airtight argument for why they should believe in God. And, you know, the famous pastor saying goes like this, what if instead of an airtight argument, what if he gave you an airtight person? And that person is Jesus. Of course, that brings up some really interesting questions about this verse, right? Because, wait a second, I thought you just told me that there's only one God. So how is there, like, God the Father and yet also God the Son, like Jesus? Wait a second. Hmm, one plus one plus one equals one. I remember that from when I was a kid, but that never made sense to me. How is that possible? How is there one God and yet I also know that Jesus is God and Jesus can also, like, pray to the Father so what's up with that? And what's this Holy Spirit thing? Well, I think the easiest way to understand this um, is, um, remember, Jesus has no problem seeing it this way, right? Jesus in John says, before Abraham was, I am. He calls himself the divine name. And then in John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are what? I and the Father are one. So apparently, Jesus has no problem in this tension. Now, how do we explain this? Well, friends, this is sort of the mystery of the Trinity. And when we talk about who God is, we have to remember that there is a triune God. There is somehow one God, but three persons. Um, I know that can be really hard to wrap our minds around, but um, I think about it this way. Um, you know, when we think about, like, how can there be one God but three persons, I think part of the issue is that, you know, when you and I think about, like, people— you know, there's, there's like a one-to-one -one ratio. For every being, there is a person. 
right? So um, let's use you as the example. You, what are you? you? You are a human being. That is what you are. You are a human being. But who are you? You are Jim Bob or, you know, Sally or whatever, right? That's who you are. But what you are is a human being. So there's a one-to-one ratio of what you are to who you are. But in the incredible beauty of God, part of the incredible like beatific vision, the thing about God that just makes us want to see him more is that he is only one being. He is God. And yet, somehow, miraculously, he is three persons. He's one God. And yet he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all of eternity, those three persons who are unconfused yet distinct yet one God have eternally loved and glorified each other. And out of that loving relationship of the triune God, all of creation springs. You know, God God is not a lonely person up in heaven wanting some friends. That's not why you and I exist. You and I exist out of the wellspring of community and life of the triune God. Just like every human uh, should, should be born out of a loving fellowship of two persons who in marriage become what? One flesh. Right? So all that to say, uh, you know, we serve a unique God. He reveals himself in his word. He's not the other gods. He's not the God that we're free to make up. He is Yahweh, our God, and there is one. All right, so let's go to the, the next idea, right? Because what, what else are we supposed to do with this? Now, we're not just hearing and obeying. We're not just knowing specifically who God is. He wants us to love him, right? Isn't that the whole point of the Shema? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We shouldn't have sang that this morning. That's in my head. With all your heart. Okay, no, okay, okay. one other person is singing it in their, in their mind. I, I just hear it, right? You know? But look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, um, all he means by heart, soul, mind, all that stuff is with everything that you've got, right? Every, there, he's not trying to like, you know, pick apart all these different parts of humanity. Uh, because, I mean, to be honest, Jesus adds one of the categories in Mark. He says, and your mind, too, right? The point is not that you're trying to like, you know, figure out which is which. The idea is just in the totality of who you are, everything about you, your resources, your reason, your mind, uh, your strength, everything that you've got should be loving God, right? That's the goal of life is to love God, right? So that begs the question, you know, why should we love God? Um, I mean, this was like the big breakthrough for me. Uh, This is really how I became a Christian in college. uh, I'll never forget it. Um, I had decided to leave the faith. I did not like Christians. I did not like Christianity. I didn't like the church. And I walked away from God for several years and for an extended period of time. And one night when I was in college, my friend Kyle uh, stopped me in my tracks. And we were talking about God and religion and stuff. And he was really into it. And I didn't want anything to do with it. And he said, he just looked me in the eyes. I'll never forget it. I love Kyle. He was super weird. But man, God used this guy. He's one of those, like, weird Christians, you know what I mean? Not like me. He was one of those weirdos, right? <laughs> Kyle stopped me. And you know what he asked me? He said, Dustin, do you love God? And you know what I said? I said, that's a stupid question. He said, no. Do you love God? And you know what I said? 
Of course I don't love him. What is there to love? He sends people to hell. I'm not saying he doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean I have to love him. And then I said, it's like, you know, to me, it's like baseball. Like a lot of things in my life, it's like baseball. And I said, just because the Yankees are the best team doesn't make me a Yankees fan. I can, be- I can believe God is real, but that doesn't mean I love him. And you know what he told me? He told me the best news I've ever heard. He said, Dustin, you aren't a Christian. And he was absolutely right. Because when I looked in my heart, I realized I had no love for God. I had only disdain. And so I went back to my dorm room that night. I remember I sat on my dorm room bed, and I was like, I was raised in the church. And how is it that when I look in my heart, I've got no love for God, only disdain? And I told God a very inaccurate prayer. I would not commend this to you. And I said, God, you have one chance to prove you are worth loving. I will read one book in the Bible, and if I don't like what I read, I'm done with you. And I can at least have a good conscience knowing that I consciously left faith. And I didn't know one thing about any book of the Bible. I didn't like study the Bible like I do now. I hadn't been to seminary, obviously. And so I just remember I had this like little Bible, and I was just like flipping around. And you know what I flipped to? I flipped to the Gospel of John. And I was like, I'll read this book, I guess. And of course, what happened? I just cried my way through it. It was so beautiful because I saw God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I remember at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, you know, there's beautiful Mary is seeing the resurrected Jesus. And I just thought, that's my guy. He's right. I am with him. If he's wrong, I'm wrong with him. (laughs) Jesus is my dude. And by the end of it, I had given my life to Christ. But it was only because I actually loved God. And the only way that I could really love God was by knowing him. Not what other people told me about him, not what I thought about him, but what his word revealed about him. Because he's not a spiritual entity. Uh, He's not just a force in the universe like gravity. He is Yahweh, our God. He is one, he is singular, and he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants you to love him. With everything that you've got. And the reason you love him is because he first loved us. Right? This is what the New Testament is constantly trying to get into our hearts and minds. You know, John said it this way. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sacrificed for my sins on the cross. And then, in case you didn't get it, he repeats it again. And he says, we love because why? We love because he first loved us. Right? We love because our God is a God of grace. And that idea doesn't begin in the New Testament. I hope you're seeing all throughout this series in the Torah that the God of love and grace in the New Testament is the same God of love and grace in the Old Testament. He is the God of second chances. He is steadfast. He is, uh, he is quick to forgive. He is slow to anger. He's the God of second chances, right? He's the God of love. And what does the Old Testament tell you the most important thing to do is? To love God. To love him with everything that you've got. You know, I could keep going, but I think you get the idea of love, right? So let me just sort of finish up with this last beat, Doing. 
Okay, so how do I love God? If you're like, okay, well, I want to hear and obey. I get that I'm supposed to know the God of the Bible, and he wants me to love him. But, like, maybe you're like me in that dorm room, you know, and you're like, I don't, I'm just looking anywhere. I've got nothing. I've got no love. What, how do I actually love God? How do I stir up more? Well, I think part of it is you look back, right? You look back to the cross, to the great acts of God, what he has done for you, and then you start looking forward into your life. Uh, but, you know, Moses has kind of a different answer than that. Look at verse 6 and following. What, what does Moses say? How do you really develop a love for the Lord? Look at verse 6. He says, In these words that I command you today, don't you love that the Bible says command instead of invite? <laughs> I just love that. Loving God is not an invitation merely. It's a command. And if you hear, then you want to obey the commands, right? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your kids. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the roads and when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. How do you spark love for God? What does Moses say? You study his word. You make it so that you're constantly talking and thinking about his word. Right? How are you supposed to know the God who reveals himself if you don't read his revelation? <laughs> like, how do you love God? You study his word. How do you find out about Jesus? You read his teachings. If you want to love God more, um, you could start with this. Right? You could start with this and say, Lord, show me your heart. I want to see you more. Right? I'll never forget, about 10 years ago, my, my buddy was stuck in all kind of wretched sin. And he was found out by the whole community. And it was really bad, really bad. And I remember he sat down with me one night. And he was like, so everybody knows what I've been doing. And it's pretty wretched. And it's pretty awful. And I realize now that I just need to be in community with people who will hold me accountable. And I keep thinking there's some other way to having a real friend without having to be honest and open. <laughs> And he's like, but there isn't another way. I can't be in community unless I'm actually honest about my sin and open to talking about it. But I keep looking for this workaround. And I was like, yeah, there, aren't, there are not shortcuts to some things in life. Um, there are no shortcuts to knowing God. Um, the way you know God is you study his word as he has revealed himself. Right? That's how you know God, is you read his word. Not skeptically, but with a, with a view towards, Lord, show me who you are. Right? Um, and you know, I love the practical advice, you know, that he, he talks about. You know, he wants you to talk about it with your kids, you know, um, when you sit in your house, you know, maybe when you're eating a meal, when you're walking, or when you're falling asleep. Um, you know, the, the image is sort of like this totality of life. Everywhere you go, all day long, maybe be thinking about the word, applying the word to our lives. And, uh, you know, that probably seems overwhelming. So I thought I would write a new Shema for today's society. Is that okay? Can I, can I try it? All right, it goes, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but it goes something like this, okay? Um, here, oh people, your phone is your God, and it is one. You shall love your phone with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And your phone shall command what you think, and it shall be on your heart constantly. Um, you will teach your children how to use their phones, and when you are at the playground, you will be on your phones. And instead of talking to your kids, you will talk to your phone 
especially when you sit in your house and especially when you're at the dinner table, especially when you're going to the grocery store and you're on your way or maybe when you're taking a walk, make sure that when you lie down, you check your phone before you go to sleep and when you wake up, make sure it's the first thing you touch. Um, If you can't handle enough of your phone, make sure you buy a smartwatch so you bind it on your hand so you won't ever miss anything. And then maybe if Google figures out a way to not make it so dorky, maybe you can buy smart glasses one day. But whatever you do, make sure that the Wi-Fi is good at your house. Hero, people. Here's your God. Here's your God. This is it. This is it. Let me put it a different way. What you consume is what you want more of. What you consume is what you want more of. What you consume is what you want more of. What you consume is what you want more of. Why do we study Deuteronomy? Why do we look at our history? It's because the past isn't even past, right? It's because the past is prologue. Moses looks at his past and he pleads with the people, right? Hear and obey. Know God. Love him. Constantly put it before yourself. Because what you consume, that's what you want more of. So, I don't know if you've thought about it yet, but what does your past say about you? What are you consuming? What are you loving? And... In case no one's actually grabbed you by the ears ever, please allow me. Do you love God? I mean, really. Do you love God? Uh, To paraphrase Moses, for the love of God, won't you listen to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Lord, we thank you that it sustained Jesus in the wilderness and that it can sustain us in the wilderness, as we live as exiles for you. Father, would you stir within us more and more of a desire to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we know that if we love you, you, we will keep your commandments and that you will give us the helper. So Holy Spirit, even now, will you be fanning into flame your power within us. Lord, may we know your love and would we love you in return. Amen.